Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for joining us at our annual technology and internet conference. Uh, I'm Toshia Hari. I cover the semiconductor and semiconductor capital equipment space uh, here at Goldman Sachs. I'm very honored and very excited to have with us today Ian Buck, uh, General Manager and Vice President of Accelerated Computing from NVIDIA. Uh, we have about 40 minutes. Uh, I have a list of questions for Ian, uh, but for those on the webcast, please feel free to type in your question and I'll try to get to them toward the latter part of the session. Uh, and with that, Ian, uh, I'd like to get started. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for carving time out of your busy schedule. Uh, I'm sure you're being pulled into uh, all sorts of directions, so I so really appreciate it. Um, this is a technology conference, so I suspect uh, most investors in the audience know who you are and have heard you speak um, uh, in the past. Uh, but just to level set the audience, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about yourself, you know, what your responsibilities are at NVIDIA, and although I'm pretty sure there's no such thing as a typical day for, for you, but uh, um, you know, I'm curious how you spend your time between you know, internal responsibilities, customer facing respons responsibilities and, and other things. Yeah, sure. Thank you for having me. And uh, no, it's, it's no bother. This is a, a, a wonderful break from all the other things I do <laughs> to get to talk a little bit about all the things we have done and where we're going. Um, my name is Ian Buck. So I'm the general manager of of accelerated computing here at NVIDIA. Um, long way of saying I'm responsible for the GPUs that go into the data centers themselves um, and not less for graphics or gaming, but more for compute and AI. My, um, my focus is on the CSP markets. So my day is filled with talking with uh, the likes of Amazon and Microsoft and Facebook and Apple and Baidu and Tencent and Alibaba and you name it, um, the hyperscalers which obviously um, we, NVIDIA, of course, has a special relationship with all of them, given, given the work that we do. Um, my, uh, I'm also responsible for our work in HPC, traditionally my background. Uh, I joined NVIDIA in 2004 and started CUDA in 2006. Came up, uh, built it up through the engineering side, mo mostly focused on computing, HPC use cases, and still today, a huge um, a part of our business. Uh, but obviously, as it uh, grew, it encompasses both um, HPC and AI today. So my time is spent with hyperscalers and some of the larger supercomputing projects that we do. Um, and uh, not surprisingly, those conversations tend to be very similar in, in some, uh, sometimes, so. Got it. Um, that's a great intro. Thank you so much. Um, I, I wanted to kick off, you know, post that introduction, um, asking you to sort of look back and reflect on, on 2020 and potentially uh, look forward to, to 2021. Um, you know, 2020 was clearly a, a very challenging year for, for many of us and, and for the global economy. Um, but, but at the same time, many of the secular trends in the technology space that we all expected to occur over the next three, five, 10 years uh, seems to have been accelerated and, and pulled in. Yeah. From, from where you sit, um, Ian, what were some of the key highlights um, of your business in, in 2020? And what are the top priorities for yourself and, and your team uh, for, for 2021? Yeah, so as I go into answering your questions, I want to remind uh, your audience um, and some, uh, my investment team reminded me, uh, this, pres this presentation, this conversation may include uh, forward-looking statements. Uh, so investors are advised to read our, our full reports filed with the SEC for information related to risks and uncertainties facing, facing the business. Um, but with that out of the way, I can get to some of your questions. It's certainly, <laughs> I don't think anyone could imagine this kind of year. Um, and it was a real test to a lot of companies in the market. 
you know, once COVID comes and we have to switch from um, an office environment, meeting customers face-to-face, traveling, um, to everyone at home and maintaining social distancing and for our business, the inability to travel, the events, the conferences going virtual, as well as engaging with our customers and our own data centers. Um, it, we are a drive a lot of the AI innovation and that comes through experimentation and development of AI. So we of course have our own, uh, uh, one of the world's largest AI supercomputers that we had to upgrade and continue to invest in. Um, in terms of achievements for the year, certainly execution wise, I think everyone at video is proud of what we were able to do. Um, we, we took COVID, ser- uh, COVID seriously early. We went home back in February. And, um, but despite that, and despite our culture, we're still able to execute. We launched uh, the Ampere generation GPUs, the A100 at our GTC conference in the spring. And it was a home run. Uh, through all the work of pulling together that launch, finalizing the product, taking it to market, uh, getting all the hyperscalers uh, and OEMs activated with the product all happened during COVID. And as a result, um, the result, the performance is great, 20x performance over the previous generation product, uh, faster than anyone expected. Um, in the meantime, we upgraded our data centers to Ampere. Uh, we competed in competitions like MLPerf virtually uh, through during COVID, um, and uh, delivering leadership performance and training and an inference. Um, you know, the the challenge is AI is not slowing down. The research community didn't slow down either. Uh, they continue to deliver faster, better, smarter neural networks. Um, basically, the neural networks are accelerating, uh, doubling basically in capability and size in terms of number of parameters every two to three months. You know, if you date back to ResNet 50 um, to GPT-3, that's like a 30,000x increase in computational complexity on those neural networks. Uh, and we've been racing to meet that demand through uh, innovating the whole stack, of course, with the hardware, with A100 helped a lot this year. Uh, the other big uh, trend this year was that uh, we finally saw the inflection on the inference side of the business. Um, as we got our uh, Ampere GPUs in, the growth of T4 in the cloud uh, for inference workloads, um, if you add up all of the flops in GPUs uh, available for inference and CPUs available for inference, we've actually tip the scales now. And uh, we have more um, more compute on GPU for inference than, than we do on, on CPU, which is great. Some of the things that are driving that are um, uh, recommender systems, uh, people figuring out how to apply AI for um, ad placement, um, content prioritization, um, uh, search. The, uh, the other one is NLP, natural language processing, speech workloads, uh, being able to do transcription, virtual chatbots, um, all these these kinds of workloads, uh, which are uh, order of magnitude more complex than what the main use case of AI in the past, which is more focused on computer vision. Um, the way I like to explain it is computer vision is is a, a baseline capability that sort of you think about it, you know, we can see and understand what we're seeing, but so can dogs and cats and even bugs have basic computer vision understanding, be able to recognize what's in an image, good or bad. Uh, understanding language that's a whole nother level of intelligence. Not only do you have to understand what I said at the rate and speed at which I say it, but what was meant and come up with an answer. And uh, only humans can do that. And um, we're nowhere near, uh, you know, to superhuman levels of NLP yet. Uh, we're trying to get there. That's one of the things that OpenAI demonstrated with GPT-3 uh, and, and then turning around to, to usable services and businesses. 
Um, so uh, the company did really well during COVID. I mean, it was a hard time for sure. Um, we all have uh, stories. Uh, we had to do data center upgrades, uh, maintaining protocols, and we even had robots, supervisors walking around observing people, uh, making sure the wiring was done right. Uh, but we were able to pull it off, and as a result, got the um, you know the market rewarded it and the customers appreciated it. And certainly at a time when people care about cloud, we were there to deliver with uh, you know next generation platform. And Ian, maybe top priorities for, for the coming year? Um, certainly we're seeing growth in um, continuing the rollout of, 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 of Ampere and Ampere products. Um, we'll see that and you'll definitely see that. The emphasis, emphasis on the vertical workloads, uh, the conversational AI, um, some of that software is early, still in beta. Now it will go more widely, also in recommender systems. Um, <clears throat> we're also seeing the uh, uh, applying the technology to uh, video and uh, collaboration platforms. That's with our Maxine products. Uh, those will, those are obviously um, were some of these were invented uh, last year. They're going to come to market now and 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 activate. So conversational AI is a huge market. You know, we're having you know, 500 million support calls, 200 million meetings a day. You know, there's there's a, there's a huge area where AI has content and opportunity to add value. And the same with recommender systems. Um, the challenge of recommenders is there's a, it's not a common input output. We're not looking looking at one picture and not telling you what's in it. It's every everything from customer sales data to web traffic to web content um, to stars and likes and reviews. So there's a much richer opportunity there with that people have to figure out different ways to apply the technology. So I see inference and um, definitely growing uh, in conversational AI and recommenders being two big drivers in natural language processing in general. Um, and and the, the new neural networks are not gonna stop. People are gonna continue to build bigger more impressive, uh, more capable AIs, and they'll need the infrastructure in order to, to deliver and get it done. Um, oh, there's a lot going to happen this year, but certainly from the AI front, that's the stuff I'm pretty excited about. Got it. Um, I definitely want to come back to, to some of the things you, you talked about there in terms of inference and the um, performance improvement with the A100. But before I go there, I um, wanted to ask about software. Um, you know, as analysts that have a semiconductor background like myself, we, we tend to spend a little bit too much time on the hardware side and maybe too little on the software side. And it's pretty clear based on what you've accomplished and what NVIDIA has accomplished, software is a very critical component yeah. that, that supports growth in the business. Um, I was hoping you could take us back to when you were working on CUDA, um, I guess in the early 2000s. Um, what drove you and your, you know, your, your company overall to, to create what is today a very critical uh, platform that supports your business. Um, explain to us how CUDA has evolved over the past, you know, sure. 14, 15 years, and how does it contribute to the competitive mode that you guys have in data center accelerated computing? Um, so early on, uh, certainly uh, we did a roadshow. We asked a lot of people in the industry who cared about computing or compute, compute focused. Um, they needed a way, you know, People have been doing you know, GP, GPU on, on graphics cards using graphics APIs. Um, a couple of things were, came out very clear. First, they want, didn't want to learn a new language. They wanted easy access to take their programmers or developers and give them a way to program these, these systems. Um, that's why CUDA was, meant, was based on C and extended to Fortran and other languages. Make it really easy for developers to grok what a GPU can do, how to express the kind of parallelism it can do without having to learn a whole new language and a whole new platform. I think we largely achieved that. Is very I can teach a developer CUDA in a day. 
uh, as long as you understand the concept of a thread, um, you can, and, and you know, our decent C or C or Fortran programming, you can get to it in the HPC space. Uh, that, that same model is extended to others. Um, one of the other, that, that quickly evolved to building out the platform because it's not, um, you can't just program the GPU. People expect a certain level of libraries and capabilities and to get their work done. No software today is developed entirely on their own. It's a combination of all the different libraries and technologies needed to make an application work, certainly in the compute space. So our work has quickly grown, had quickly grown to building a entire platform of SDKs and libraries that enable it, starting with basic math libraries, signal processing, linear algebra operations, to now sparse algebra, DNN libraries, uh, video codecs, Dolly for input and output processing. Um, we have over 80 SDKs now which track the different indus industries and give them not just a way to program the GPU, that's you know one step, but all the libraries, all the capabilities that have already been optimized for our GPUs and are backward and forward compatible. So if you're using them today, you go from Volta V100 to Ampere, you just get the 10X, right? Like that without having, and the customers who are on our platform get to enjoy that. The other thing that I think, so our platform has grown substantially since that first day where we you know, had to program a kernel, how to program one, one piece of code on the GPU to providing those different, um, uh, must be hundreds of libraries now. And a, over, I mentioned over 80 SDKs to make that successful. The other thing we recognized, and this was a, a big secret to our success is the fact that we're a full stack platform. We didn't try to like standardize or define the next generation ISA. In fact, we don't even release the ISAs for our GPUs. We decided to tackle the problem at a higher level, to get, meet the programmers up where they're programming and how they're expressing their problem and different ways they want to consume it. And then keep the innovation space deep so that we could innovate on the broader software stack underneath them, as well as the hardware and change the hardware over time. So as a result, well, we have a huge number of uh, software developers. I think we actually have more software developers and hardware developers than NVIDIA building and investing in those algorithms, those libraries, and how to write code and, and optimize for our GPUs to meet the developer up here where they're doing the algorithmic work. Um, in the meantime, that also gives us the flexibility to completely redesign our architecture. We can break ISA compatibility all the day long, in fact we do, in order to um, move the needle forward up here because we learn and engage the customer. So I think that's been um, a big part of our success is that we look at the whole stack and, and we even have people that engage with the applications themselves uh, in each of the industries because we stay focused on certain ones that we know we're gonna add value and then optimize the whole stack from the chip to the library, to the compiler, to the runtime, to all the you know vertical stacks that we have. Um, so that was a critical decision early on. Don't worry about ISA compatibility, meet them up here, provide this whole innovation space and that's really how we get the you know, 10 to 20x kind of performance that you see in some of our numbers is because we're innovating all the way up here. This is where the programmers meet us. They've developed on Volta or Kepler or Fermi before that. They just, uh, they ride that wave. And that's why, that's why the platform is so enjoyable to so many people. Got it. Um, thank you for that. And then Ian, um, just wanted to, to shift gears a little bit and, and talk about you know the, the growth drivers of the business. And you sort of touched on this earlier. Uh, in, in your response, um, but hyperscale obviously has been a very important, you know, market for, for you. It's sort of, you know, the business that has turbocharged growth in, in your overall data center business. Um, you spoke to um, things like conversational AI, recommender systems as, you know, important drivers of your business this year and obviously going forward, you know, based on 
the, the conversation you're having with the Amazons and the Googles, Googles of the world, how are you thinking about growth and what are sort of, sort of some of the killer applications for your hyperscale business? Yeah, hyperscalers tend to be the tip of the spear because they both serve a market in, in terms of renting inference and infra, uh, sorry infrastructure, as well as being customers themselves. And they often have the development teams and the engineering teams to go invest and build um, those, those are first adopter kind of uh, use cases like we saw at AI in the beginning. Um, so as a result, they're obviously a very important customer. We learn a lot from engaging with them. We partner with them to help them take those technologies to market, whether it be uh, you know, uh, conversational AI or language processing or BERT or the next model for doing um, recommender systems. Um, we're, we, we learn a lot from that engagement. We serve them well. They, they enjoy, the developers enjoy our platform. And at the same time, they can turn around and turn it into services themselves or provide the core infrastructure that the rest of the market can then rent from them and engage. Now it takes longer for the rest of the market to, to catch up to where Google is because they don't obviously don't have the brain trust of a Google or uh, an Amazon or an Alibaba, uh, but that's happening. In fact, our vertical industries, rep uh, you know, we're now running about 50-50 where if it's half of our businesses uh, of, uh, uh, hyperscale represented 50% of our data center revenue, where those vertical industries represented another 50%. So they're catching up and learning those techniques. Uh, part of it is because they're, they're the SDKs, the libraries, the application frameworks are there now for them. They don't have to build it from scratch. Those industries, which may not have the, the, the AI prowess, can consume it through a library or service rather than um, uh, developing themselves. Over time, I think uh, both data center and edge use cases will uh, will be much larger than hyperscale um, as the world industries consume more of a footprint and, and learn to adopt this technology. And you're obviously seeing it being applied everywhere. Um, in the end, it'll be a choice of how they want to consume it, whether it's uh, in the cloud, in their own data managed data center, or, or push it to the edge based on the problem or use cases. Um, my job is basically to activate all three of those and let the customers figure and choose amongst themselves based on the use cases. Um, but we're certainly seeing early adoption now in uh, the vertical space, uh, certainly manufacturing, transportation, healthcare, retail, uh, financial services, um, certainly, um, and early adopter companies like you know BMW or GE or Walmart or uh, American Express, for example, figuring out how to apply this technology. And we certainly get involved and engage with them. One of the fun parts about being NVIDIA is that we're the only company we're the only AI company that works with every other AI company. So we are able to learn from and engage you know, on Facebook at the same time on Amex and be able to uh, bridge the technology and the capability um, from a recommender system that may be used for a social media site to looking for fraud in a credit card transaction. Um, while those are different use cases, the underlying system is a recommender system. It's trying to understand uh, from a litany of unstructured data, what the right choices are or what anomalies might be in the system. Got it. Um, so, so that was sort of my next question in, um, you know, the traction you're seeing on the enterprise side. Um, you know, as you, as you mentioned, your business is about 50-50 uh, roughly today. Um, you know, healthcare, financial services, manufacturing, you, you listed a couple of, of, you know, verticals where you're seeing traction. But could you shed some light on how you're thinking about the enterprise market, you know, medium to long term relative to hyperscale? Uh, you know, it's probably hard to put an exact number on it, but how do you think about the relative growth pro profile of enterprise vis-a-vis -vis, um, hyperscale? And how do you think about 
the, the adoption yeah. cycle in enterprise relative the, to the adoption of our technologies well there's there's a couple there's there's two camps i think we've always been had a presence in the hpc side of course uh, oil and gas industry needs uh, supercomputers to do seismic processing. We've met that market well and continue to do so. Um, likewise, uh, for in the in the simulation space, as you can imagine, I think AI adoption in enterprise is still uh, fairly early, early days. So I expect that to grow significantly. Um, the challenge is how can they consume it and adopt it, and what's the right products for them to consume and adopt it, uh, and making it a little bit easier. Then you can't just give them, you know, TensorFlow and hope that they can train their model. Um, in, in the end, we're focused on more vertical SDKs and solutions and stacks. Uh, that's one of the focuses around Jarvis, our conversational AI platform, providing them with a complete end-to-end -end ASR, NLU, TTS pipeline, uh, which has been pre-trained on all the data that we have in our own fleet of GGX systems. Cust enterprise customers get something which can do transcription out of the box. They may have to do some last mile training, but that's we even provide frameworks for doing that. So they can tune their, their, their a generically trained model, which can understand uh, a phone conversation and then augment it with the main specific information. If I'm ordering prescriptions, it, you know, it teaches it how the prescription names uh, so it can recognize them. But you've already teaching someone who's already well understood it knows how to speak English and knows how to have a conversation uh, where in AI, if you start from the beginning, you're truly starting from a brand new baby. They know nothing. And it's, it's a huge engineering task to bring them up to that speed. Um, you see this in models like BERT. Um, they offer fine tuning as a capability. So you train to a certain level of intelligence and you fine tune for the specialization. Those stacks don't really exist um, and are starting to exist. So that's the focus of our driver's stack is to provide that for conversational AI. Similarly, Merlin for recommender systems and um, uh, Maxine for UCAS, uh, this kind of collaboration platform. Um, providing the, what's, what's needed for enterprise to adopt is uh, more vertical uh, based focus SDKs. And they need to be bought and sold like a product and managed and ma maintained, uh, which is a little different go to market, a little different engagement than what you might see in a hyperscaler, which is obviously more technology focused and uh, developer to developer, which we've done pretty well at that too. I have full confidence we know how to do this. Uh, we certainly do this uh, in different markets today. A lot of our quadro rendering business is done this way. A lot of the early AI adoption that we've been doing, uh, we've seen great success with, um, uh, with Triton and some of the inference software that we've been building. So I'm excited to see that that come to fruition this year and, and moving on. Got it. Um, Ian, um, wanted to ask you about inference. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, the, one of the more common, um, you know, reactions from investors was, hey, you know, NVIDIA dominates the, the training market, but, you know, they don't have a plan inference and it's mostly CPU based and so on and so forth. And here we are, obviously, you've had a ton of success with the T4 and now the A100. Um, and I guess recently you noted that the aggregate NVIDIA GPU comp compute capacity uh, available for inference in the cloud has now exceeded that of, of CPUs. Um, what's been sort of, not the secret sauce, but what's been the big driver there um, in, 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 in terms of how, how you've done so well in inference to date? Uh, it, it starts with the model complexity. You know, some of the, obviously training is, a, is orders of magnitude more complex uh, than, than inference. 
when you train a model, you do an inference, but the back propagation is where a lot of the computation is uh, and obviously requires um, where we where we started. Uh, but for many of those early uh, AI models in the computer vision space and others, uh, a CPU infrastructure was certainly um, suitable. It could execute the forward pass of an AI uh, in a reasonable amount of latency and is also what people had. So uh, they take their existing software, they simply call a uh, user framework and just, just kick off the inference and it's capable. What's changed is the model complexity. Uh, model complexity, both in the models, the traditional use cases and the new use cases. Um, uh, as CV went, computer vision went to NASCAR CNN, it got harder, where now you can not only just put bounding boxes around people or things or objects, but actually identify each and every pixel, um, doing that, attempting to do that at real time or with high throughput became prohibitively expensive. Uh, NLP is the other driver. So BERT um, model uh, is, is an example. Um, also DLRM. Uh, DLRM was the deep learning recommender model, which is uh, uh, basically it's a reference uh, recommender model from Facebook, which they submitted to MLPerf. Um, it's, it's much harder to execute in real time with the latency requirements you might have for a recommender system or a language system. As we're having a conversation, I can't take seconds to do inference. I have to respond in, you know, under 100 milliseconds. Um, once you take out all the network traffic load, and then my time slot for actually doing inference is quite small in a real-time interaction use case. In a recommender system, it's even worse because you have to actually run that recommender over thousands of products and get the click and the answer immediately. So that is driving some of the the, the growth that we see in um, uh, in T4. Um, we had record revenues of T4 and shipments in Q3. Um, you know, there's you can get T4, which is our you know inference-focused GPU. It's priced differently. It's a different product, but it's focused on inference uh, from all the hyperscalers, and, um, <clears throat> and you can see uh, that that's driving a lot of the, the strength. The other part is software. It doesn't. Uh, the software problem hasn't gone away. Like delivering the best performance on these problems isn't just having a chip with a lot of flops, but the having the algorithms and the optimizations and the software stack to execute them at the right precision and maintain the accuracy and continue to provide the high throughput. Uh, we've been investing in software called TensorRT, which is sort of a deep learning inference compiler. It takes the, it takes the model which you trained from TensorFlow or PyTorch or, or whatever and compiles it down to reduce precision, uh, FP16 or an in date um, and runs it in real time. Um, on top of that, we have found that there have been challenges with deploying inference. Um, and so we've made that also easier in a Kubernetes environment with our Triton software, um, which is now a, it's like a turnkey inference engine. You give it a throw it, or if it you fire up uh, Triton across a Kubernetes Helm chart. Uh, you just need to send it the data and it gives you the inference back. A lot of our customers are trying to optimize their inference infrastructure with Triton. It's been super helpful to help people deploy it. It runs on CPUs, it runs on GPUs, it supports all the different, all the major AI frameworks. It even includes some of them. So it's it's been a huge uplift and help in our business to make it easier for people to deploy inference. Uh, instead of trying to shoehorn it into an existing application, they can just call out to a microservice. Um, so again, software is a huge part of that. Training is one job. Inference is an entirely different other where latency, throughput, accuracy, quantization, um, graph com compilers and fusion uh, matter a lot. And then diversity, and you got to work with the Kubernetes infrastructure, uh, Prometheus monitoring system, all this other stuff has to work in order to get this stuff into production. It's a lot of software. 
uh, we've been investing in that for a couple of years now, and it's just thrilled to see it now finally uh, take off. Uh, great use cases, Amex fraud detection is one. Um, Walmart's using it for inventory management. Um, micro, even Microsoft um, uh, Office, your grammar correction right now is being done through a cloud, GP, in the cloud, in Azure, you know, checking your grammar on a GPU. Yeah, just to follow up, Ian, um, in terms of how you think about growth and model complexity, um, yeah. I feel like if you and your customers manage to perfect things like conversational AI recommender systems, that's pretty darn complex. Um, but is it fair to sort of extrapolate the, the current slope um, in terms of the rate at which um, models are becoming complex into the future, or could there even be an acceleration? Or how do you think about that? So um, both NLU and recommender systems are still uh, open-ended. They haven't tapped out as the curve is not slowing down. Uh, GPT-3 from OpenAI proved it. They can continue to go up on the right. Um, and we've all seen the charts of model complexity. Language, no one's shown the end of language. Um, and no, these neural networks are not close to uh, human level of neurons uh, if you just do the naive parameter neuron basis. So there's still clearly more, at least one existence proof that we've got a, another one or two orders of magnitude to go. Um, and by the way, training at that scale gets really complicated uh, to get net, to have that whole thing learn and converge. So I expect as uh, that to continue, um, as you do the application of NLU to the different use cases, there will be specialization of those networks. Uh, it's not as simple as, you know, what people want to extract from language varies compared to like images where it's image in and recognition out, you know, box, bounding box out. This is much more complicated, Recon you know, language in, sentiment out or search, I want to find data or information or structured data from, you know, imagine if I could take the New York Times and read the New York Times and out comes a fully structured table of the information that could be used and searched for. Um, you know, cyber security, another example, like every network log and be able to build and extract structured data that I can then do and look for intrusion detection. So the application space will go get really broad in the NLU. The exact same story plays out in recommender systems. That's even more complicated just because the data in and data out tends to be so, so unstructured as well. And the application use cases are all widely different. So that's what makes AI super exciting is the application space keeps diver becoming broader, diverging, if you will. And as a result, the diff variety of different neural networks and what a platform needs to run gets more complicated. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why we invest so much in our different vertical use cases to get that experience and bring it back into our core platforms and figure out where to optimize. So I don't think uh, the network complexity is not gonna slow down. People continue to get to human levels of language understanding and intelligence. But more interestingly, I think the application use case and the, the applied use cases will continue to expand. So the diversity of models that came bring an explosion, that big bang of AI is just gonna get more and more um, exciting as people like, apply it to a variety of different use cases. Um, speech too, by the way. Creating human, reliable human speech. We've applied AI to that problem, but we are not done. Many of those uh, use cases are still, um, and, and turning it, a, a good AI uh, speech use case is still um, still being developed. That's fascinating stuff. Um, uh, shifting gears a little bit, wanted to ask you about, you know, the roadmap. Uh, as you as you mentioned earlier, the rate of innovation and. In GPU accelerated computing has been staggering. I think you spoke mm -hmm. to a 20x improvement with the A100. Um, 
you know, based on what you're working on today and the visibility you have uh, internally into into your roadmap, how would you characterize the sustainability of your technology cadence? And outside of, you know, 10 going to seven nanometer and seven going to five, what are some of the levers that you have that you can pull both on the hardware side and the software side to, to, to maintain that, that, um, that cadence? Yeah, a huge a part huge of what we do is the, um, the full stack optimization. While going to a new node technology changes some of the parameters, it's obviously good from a baseline. You know, as you go to different node technologies, your efficiency or performance at a particular power level increases. Also, where you can run processors at different power levels can, can change and shift over time. Uh, that's great. And it gives you new options and, 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 and transistor performance. Where the a huge part of the performance comes out is in the software and algorithms. We improved Volta's performance from the day we launched it at a GTC, to the day we launched A100 three years later at a different GTC by 4X. That came through innovations in algorithms, compilers, working with the community to improve the overall holistic platform, running on the same V100 GPU or that same server. So um, that's what, uh, when we are, and as a result, you know, we try to crank out our software and our optimization as fast as we can. I publish a new framework container every month with the VTensorflow or PyTorch to improve and accelerate training. We look at bottlenecks of the training pipeline and see how we can make them faster. As we make the core, you know, flops faster and the matrix multiplies or the layers, a lot of the IO pipeline starts to show up. Amdahl's law is a bitch and it shows up in a lot of places and that front end and back end can burn you. So we've actually had to work and optimize those use cases. Uh, we invented a library called Dolly, which does all of the pre-processing and image processing for cropping and angling and preparing the data so it can be trained on a GPU because CPU just couldn't keep up. Um, the same applies to audio and other data processing. Um, and Vtabular, a library for processing and structuring a lot of the data, uh, used to be all done on the CPU. We now do it on the GPU so that we can keep it right there next to the framework so the data can be optimized and move quickly. Um, so that's that's uh, a huge part of what makes our platforms more successful is uh, generation over generation. And, um, and we don't wait for a new hardware to release it. We're just constantly pumping out that technology. Um, it all comes together holistically um, when you look at the top and bottom. So up here you have the software, the algorithms, um, the domain-specific solutions that make things a lot faster. You then, of course, have the CUDA, the compilers, and the runtimes, which, of course, work for the operating system to optimize all of the, the, the low-level optimizations. That, of course, goes to a GPU itself, which has been improved and redesigned throughout the old ISO, bring in a new one, um, redesign the core uh, SM architecture, as we see trends and shifts in both HPC and AI. But then it scales out again as we look at the data center itself. And we don't constrain ourselves to one GPU or PCIe card. We broke the mold and turned the GPU on its side, turned it into a mezzanine product and built our HGX baseboard, which goes into our DGX platform, which goes the same HGX goes into all the hyperscalers and the OEMs. Uh, we then take a step further and we look at the interconnect and with the acquisition of Mellanox, we can now look at building data center scale supercomputers that work as one to other um, that solve some of these uh, these AI challenges, help define the future of AI. Um, so is both a software stack and a data center scale optimization that's being done generation over generation. And you kind of need to think that way. AI is getting too big for one GPU or one processor. It's not about a 
you know, can you run this layer fast? It's can you apply all that technology to develop those next generation AIs for those work workloads? Because the science and the, the uh, data sciences are not feeling constrained by that. Um, they want to push the limits. And if we can provide them ways of training at scale, uh, like we've demonstrated, um, they will take advantage of it to develop the next generation uh, AI. I mean, you, you uh, touched on Mellanox a little bit. Can you speak to the DPU opportunity that you see um, over the next couple of years? Yeah, I think it's um, uh, super exciting. So the, the, um, um, with the acquisition of, of Mellanox, I think we can look at doing what we did for computing uh, to the network and data center scale networking space. Um, the NVIDIA Bluefield, for example, uh, and taking uh, networking and building a DPU programmable data center on a chip opens up another a 10 billion TAM for NVIDIA. Um, DPUs with Doka, which is our counterpart to CUDA for that platform, can help re-architect that modern data center uh, to, to, do the, to optimize the data center scale networking. Um, this is an area of security or in-network compute or being able to make our data centers malleable turn a supercomputer into a, a cloud resource, uh, all capable through uh, by once you insert a programmable networking platform that can ensure security and isolation and the right levels of offload to not impact performance. Um, so that's some of the problems it's trying to solve. And uh, we're early on in that fit in that, that journey. Uh, certainly we've worked, I've worked with Myron Locks for well over a decade in the HPC space, the cultures are very compatible, very engineering driven, very technical. It's great to see them at NVIDIA. And certainly getting, uh, we can bring some of our platform strength and our capabilities that we've talked about from the full stack to that market and really help revolutionize it. Um, and then with ARM, it's, it's been about four months since you announced the acquisition. Um, you know, what's been the early feedback from your customers, from the broader ecosystem? And uh, remind us how ARM fits into your overall data center strategy. Sure, sure. Uh, ARM is also very exciting. And certainly where I'm spending a lot of my time right now. Um, a lot of interest in ARM, a ton. Uh, our strategy from an AI, uh, from a um, company standpoint, I think we've made clear is to create the, you know, premier computing, computing company uh, for the age of AI. We can combine a lot of our uh, NVIDIA's AI leading computing platform with ARM's vast ecosystem and help really move the ball forward as we, as we do it together uh, and helps position uh, for the next wave of computing in the age of AI. Um, and it's, it's at the having of the data center, it's having at the, the desktop, and of course it's having the edge in the, and, and the world of IoT. Um, we can help expand uh, ARM's IP licensing portfolio with NVIDIA's technology to meet some of those large markets, including mobiles and PCs. Um, uh, we also, given our background in data center and server, we can help advance turbocharge arms, uh, uh, CPU roadmap and pace uh, into the data center. And of course, there's a lot of interest in that with the work on Amazon and Graviton. Of course, in the consumer side, you can see what Apple's doing with M1. It's a great time for ARM. Uh, we're certainly seeing it uh, everywhere. Customer feedback, um, overall positive. Uh, deal would not affect any way of customers getting access to ARM's technology, so they like that. Uh, we're fully committed to ARM's existing licensing model, uh, preserve Arm, ARM's you know, customer neutrality in that regard. Um, in general, NVIDIA has been uh, an open company. 
we work with every major CPU provider, um, both x86, I, I did a lot of work with IBM Power, and, and of course, uh, uh, ARM even before the acquisition uh, was announced. Uh, like I said, we're the only AI company that works with every other AI company. So we, my job is to activate our technology in all those places and help get it um, as we help ride and accelerate uh, the, that tide of AI. Um, we have high confidence deal will close, uh, but in the long term, we can, you know, we treat ARM like a first-class citizen as did before the acquisition. And we've certainly already released our software stacks on ARM and we're excited to see it come to market. Ian, I, I can't believe we're out of time, but before we let you go, um, just wanted to ask you, um, you know, I realize you probably don't spend too much time with, with the finance community, maybe you do, but, but to the extent you have a view, um, what is the, sort of the finance world missing about your prospects and data center, or the, the world more, more broadly? Well, what are we missing or underestimating about the story? Well, first off, um, uh, it's uh, hard to, you know, uh, to comprehend the growth of AI. I don't think, you know, none of us, um, unless you were around the original PC revolution, kind of experienced something like this before. Uh, and what does it mean for models to be doubling every two to three months? And what does that mean, not just for NVIDIA, but just in general in all the different markets? You know, the people that figure this out first are gonna really um, make waves into what they can do and how they impact their, um, uh, their enterprise, their problems, their customers. Um, it is hard. That is also, I think it's it's hard to put a number around that or put it on a spec sheet or say, I've got a great product. I've lived this, I've been doing it for <laughs> uh, since AI, since Alice Kravetsky first did that work up in Montreal and I worked with Yann Kuhn. Well, I didn't work with him, but as soon as he did that Torch 7 where he started turning on GPUs, it's really hard. Um, and the complexity of the software stack is intense. Um, and the value of uh, full stack innovation. So I think it's really important as you see different things happening in the industry, understand their software and how they expect to you know, take it to market and where, what, they're, what they're doing. Um, it's, that is a huge part of what we do and it's hard to quantify other than uh, the amount of constant optimizations and work that we do to move the ball forward in the software stack and the underlying hardware capability. Um, that said, uh, and that's what the full stack innovation sort of business model engineering approach um, has enabled us to do and keeps it keeps it super fun and us moving so quickly. Um, but don't underestimate the cost and energy it takes to bring these things to get this stuff done. So, but it keeps me, it's very fun. And I get to learn about every different use case of AI. I wouldn't, well, I wouldn't wish for any other job. I think that's a great place to, to end. Uh, Ian, thank you again for, for the precious time and thank you for all the insights and also a big thank you to, to all the investors that uh, joined us this afternoon. Thank you and good luck. With you all, everyone. Thank you. Bye.